Case number 21-7067, Anjean Cannon, deceased in the state of Anjean Cannon by and through John Cannon and Francis Cannon, executors of the estate of Anjean Cannon versus Watermark Retirement Communities, Inc. et al. Appellants, Ms. Miller for appellants, Mr. Becker for appellees. Morning, Council. Ms. Miller, please proceed whenever you're ready. Thank you, Your Honor. May it please the Court, Amy Miller, on behalf of appellants, I'd like to reserve three minutes for rebuttal. The issues in this appeal of jurisdiction and immunity are both guided by the plain language of the PREP Act. I'll briefly address jurisdiction first and then turn to immunity. With respect to jurisdiction, I'd like to make a couple of points, especially following on Judge Pillard's point about the plain text. The first point really is the plain text of E10. This is the basis for the appeal. E1 through E9 each contain language limiting the scope to an action under subsection D, but E10 very conspicuously does not. In fact, E10 not only omits that reference, it replaces it with reference to subsection A. Subsection A, of course, addresses immunity and not willful misconduct. It says covered persons shall be immune from suit and liability from all claims of loss related to the use or administration of a covered countermeasure. So, Ms. Miller, um, in, I don't think this was covered in the earlier case, but E1 through 9 relate to the district court level, and E10 relates to the Court of Appeals. Why would there be language in E10 about in an action under subsection D? I read, I read the language as plainly uh, referring to the appeal that can be brought here only if it's uh, deliberate misconduct. So the fact that that language is omitted uh, shows that Congress did make a choice not to include it in that section, and that is certainly very telling. But it is not the only time in the E section that it was contemplated by Congress that a suit may be initiated elsewhere. Um, as counsel pointed out under E9 um, sanctions, it does say whenever a district court of the United States determines that there has been a violation of Rule 11. That is another example where Congress, uh, in our opinion, it's not sloppy drafting. It's actually intentional and, right. and contemplated that a suit may initiate somewhere other than the DDC. But I'm Hawaii, not but sure that that helps you because I don't think that there's dispute that a, a, uh, an action under the carve-out in a, D, a subsection D action could take place in any district court in a country. And so if one were to confine E10 only to interlocutory appeals from orders in subsection D actions, you would still have them from an array of different, different district courts, no? Well, certainly when any claim of loss is filed yeah. by a claimant, um, the, the PREP Act provides that the covered person shall be immune from suit and liability 
regardless of where it's initiated. I mean, that's plain in, in subsection A. And Congress knew that claims of all shapes and sizes filed in district courts under color of state law and elsewhere may be filed. But the point is that all claims of loss, um, there's immunity with respect to all claims of loss. Where are you reading the all claims of loss? In A1. Okay, so my reading, I mean, I think this may just be repeating Judge Henderson's question, but unlike subsections E1 to 9, which are addressed to the plaintiffs and what they have to do in framing up a claim under subsection D, subsection E10 affords a procedure to defendants, and defendants' litigating position is the suit is not properly understood to be a suit under subsection D, and therefore should be treated as a suit under subsection A, and so that's why it would, that's why E10 refers to immunity conferred by subsection A, that it's not, it, it, it kicks back in if the, if the claim is not, if, if the, the point of the appeal is to say, no, no, we have this wrong. This is not a suit under subsection D. Ergo, it's a suit under A that's immune. So, so I'm just saying that that would be your opponent's argument, how we make sense of both the omission of reference to subsection D, which is in one through nine, and the adding of a reference to subsection A. Again, we go back to the fact that Congress intentionally included that phrase in every one of these. Yeah. And each it would have been so easy and perhaps logical if it were the intent to say that to take jurisdiction of an interlocutory appeal from a proceeding under subsection D. It's also very telling that- But I thought, but I think the point is that it might not have made sense to say that because what the defendant would be saying is this is not a, this properly considered is not a case under subsection D. I mean, that's your position. Well, if, if this were a case that had been filed in, in the three-judge court as a, as a D action and you were representing your client and had, had an argument, no, this is not willful misconduct. This is reverts back to being an ordinary A case. At the plaintiff, sorry, I got the parties mis misaligned, but right. Well, the subsection D procedures that initiate it properly in the DDC um, provide for a motion to dismiss or summary judgment, and there is a three-judge panel, but it is only the issue of immunity on a motion to dismiss that presumably may be appealed to this circuit. Um, it is not broader than that. It is a very narrow scope interlocutory for this court to the denial of immunity, not statute of limitations, not whether they're a covered, you know, it's a, um, not whether they fail to exhaust administrative remedies, it's only immunity. And again, that's why it makes more sense with the rest of the act, particularly if under, under Apolli's reading, the the act would give greater rights and greater protections to defendants accused of willful misconduct. Has Watermark filed a protective appeal in the Third Circuit in the event that we don't have jurisdiction? Um, they sought either a 1292B appeal or a Cohen collateral order appeal in the Third Circuit? No, we, no, we have not. This interlocutory appeal was taken directly to this court within 30 days per the statute. Well, you wouldn't have to file a protective notice under, uh, under, under collateral order, I take it, but under 1292B, 
you could still do that, right? Well, I believe so, but to answer the question, no, we we have not done that. But you, but you, do you see a reason why you couldn't do that if you wanted to? We we see the exclusive jurisdiction um, or the mandatory jurisdiction language in E10 as directing the denial of immunity under subsection A under the PREP Act as this court would be the proper jurisdiction. But it doesn't say shall have jurisdiction only, and I'm not sure it's in your client's interest to read it that way, given it, that we haven't ruled yet. It does, it does appear to be a mechanism in the statute that gives a covered person the option to pursue that right. here as early as possible, and, and that is certainly the, uh, the option that we took. And if you, suppose suppose um, suppose a defendant in your position misses the thirty days, just inadvertently misses the thirty days, and let's just take twelve ninety two b out of the equation for now. But the defendant still wants to take up the issue of immunity at the end of the case. Well, if at the end of the there is another opportunity with summary judgment, obviously. Under right. And, and let's assume that's uh, right. This is on a, a motion right. dismissed, but let's assume summary judgment. It's just missed. And then it happens at the end of the case, like the case goes to a um, uh, verdict in favor of the plaintiffs and the defendant wants to take up the issue of immunity. At that point, you don't dispute that in this case, for example, if this went forward, and went all the way to that stage, that the immunity of the, the appeal at the end of the day would go to the third circuit. It, it would be it would be appropriate to take that up on appeal to the third circuit along with any other issues. The point of E10 is to give a covered person an early opportunity to pursue interlocutory appeal to this court for consistency and for immediacy um, to get an early answer to have that. But there wouldn't be consistency because uh, across results least because, or at least there wouldn't be guaranteed consistency across results, because if it could be taken up to the third circuit at the end of the case, but it could be taken up to the DC circuit in the middle of the case, then that seems like an odd dynamic. Well, it, it is an immediate right of appeal. Congress um, anticipating that this would be the court, perhaps similar to appeals of administrative actions where because of the expertise and having a central location, there could be consistency in results in reviewing denials of immunity as early as possible in these types of cases. Um, it is our position that these would come from federal district court um, to this court. And so you, your position is it doesn't cover state court actions? We're not advocating. We're not advocating that today. We agree with uh, your honor's uh, statement earlier that there are perhaps um, federalism issues, abstention issues, including the Rooker-Feldman doctrine, that would have to be considered in conjunction um, with with E10. But oh, but that's not those aren't statute those aren't textual arguments. You're just saying that there'd be other things that kick in that would might. Yeah, certainly other statutes or or other legal principles, principles. would be relevant. And can I just get clarification on E9? Because I, I I'm yeah on E9. It does say whenever a district court of the United States determines that there's been a violation of Rule 11 in an action under subsection D. So does E9 apply outside of an action under subsection D? E9 appears to be confined to subsection D proceedings, yeah. um, but it does allow that a suit may have been initiated in the wrong court. So you, oh, you, oh, you, you think that. A D action can only be brought in the 
in DDC. Correct. But what E9 covers when it says whenever a district court, I see, is that it covers an, an action erroneously brought in a different district. That, that's correct. And I may, I'm drawing attention to that for the broader point that Congress anticipated both in E9 and in A1 that suits may be initiated in various different venues. The point is that all claims of loss have immunity for covered persons when there is an administration of a covered countermeasure. What, what about E6, where um, it's clearly limited to subsection D claims, and it talks about in the event a, per, a covered person files an interlocutory appeal from the denial of such motion, um, the discovery shall, no discovery shall be allowed. So it's staying discovery in an, in a subsection D interlocutory appeal. It seems like that is not a slam dunk, but it's a textual cross-reference to subsection D interlocutory appeal. There is. I mean, there's, there's certainly the, the argument that subsection D proceedings um, that covered persons under those facts would have interlocutory appeal to this court as well. And to the extent E1 through E9 are talking about other aspects of those willful misconduct proceedings, it would be appropriate to reference but, that there may be an interlocutory. But I guess appeal. I'm pointing out that under your reading, you can take an E10 interlocutory appeal unrelated to a subsection D claim, but instead at the threshold between is does PREP Act immunity apply or is this not a PREP Act case at all? And in that situation, discovery would not be stayed by E6. Well, the way E10 is worded is that if there is a denial of immunity by a covered person, um, where the denial of immunity, is, the assertion of immunity is made under subsection A, that is enough to confer jurisdiction in this court for an immediate interlocutory review of that. But it's odd. Well, go ahead and finish your answer. I'm sorry, I just interrupted you. So it would not require, for example, a uh, preliminary determination of whether the uh, the PREP Act applies. Well, all I'm saying is that there's sort of two, two different boundaries where parties disagree about immunity. One is whether the PREP Act applies at all, or if it's not a PREP Act case, then where, you know, the, the appeal could be, uh, this should be the, under the PREP Act, you know, you're representing your clients, plaintiffs are saying, no, no, it, it shouldn't be because, you know, emergency use authorization wasn't met or whatever. Or the immunity question can happen as between a, uh, a D case that's proceeding or no, no, there's not enough pleading of, of the kind of willfulness that would allow a D case in, in a three-judge DDC court. So it is, there's immunity under the PREP Act. So there's sort of these two different boundaries. And my understanding is that the first boundary, does the PREP Act apply or not? Under your reading, there's an interlocutory appeal to our court from a denial of that immunity, from a, basically from a district court saying, PREP Act doesn't even apply here. And all I'm saying is the way you're reading the statute, you in that case, when you're appealing from that order, discovery goes forward. Whereas when you're appealing from a district court saying the D claim can go ahead, and you're saying, no, no, that should not go ahead, discovery is stayed because E6 is expressly limited 
to a claim under subsection D. Does that make sense? I know that was long-winded. Well, it, it does make sense. And I agree it's silent whether if the action initiated in another district court, if discovery or other issues are also stayed, right. it is more specific. And that seems anomalous to me, that Congress would not have provided for a discovery stay there, but would have in E be provided for this interlocutory appeal. But in the context of E6, Congress really does get into the weeds with, you know, limits and timing of discovery and caps on damages and other things in E1 through 9. It does make sense there that if we're going to talk about the amount of discovery and what the burden threshold is and the timing of it, it would be acceptable to go ahead and address that discovery is stayed during an interlocutory appeal. Um, I don't, uh, don't believe that rules out that an interlocutory appeal can and, and should be taken from another district court just because the proceeding um, where immunity was asserted was, was initiated there. Um, probably in, initiated there improperly. But in many cases, or in most cases, I would think, including ours, discovery is, is stayed and the court is taking, the district court is taking uh, the position that for now, it, it does not have jurisdiction of the case until the appeal is resolved here. Okay. Let me um, make sure my colleagues don't have additional questions for you at this time, and we'll give you your rebuttal time. Um, and we'll hear from the appellees now. Thank you, Ms. Miller. Mr. Becker. Honors, may it please the court. Jake Becker on behalf of appellee plaintiffs and Jean Cannon and the estate of Ann Jean Cannon. The record is clear that the complaint raises five separate causes of action, only one of which is solely based on the administration of hydroxychloroquine to Ms. Cannon. With the other four counts, plaintiff raises state claims of negligence based on 14 specific negligent actions and inactions by Watermark at the, and the administration of hydroxychloroquine is only implicated by one of the 14. At the outset, it is noteworthy that appellants now seek this court to assert jurisdiction over both the claims related to hydroxychloroquine and the unrelated state negligence claim. None of the aforementioned claims were brought under the PrEP Act, nor do they implicate PrEP Act immunity, any immunity provided by the PrEP Act. In light of that, I'd like to address your Honor's question about how Section E10 is meant more for defendants rather one through nine is meant for the plaintiff. That reading is precisely why E10 must be limited to cases brought under subsection D. E1 through nine, although it does include the prefatory language, is meant to dictate how you bring a claim under subsection D. Subsection 10, yes, does not have that prefatory language. However, it is meant so how a defendant can appeal and, and essentially transfer a case brought under D and saying, no, this isn't willful misconduct. It should have been an A1 claim. So in that regard, the prefatory language included here would have only added more confusion and not less. Well, it could have been done clearly. I mean, it, you know, uh, Court of Appeals of the District of Columbia Circuit shall have jurisdiction of an interlocutory appeal by a covered person taken within 30 days of an order in an action brought pursuant to subsection D, denying a motion to, you know, they, they could have 
as Congress did with the other provisions, referred to the action of the plaintiffs in framing it and then given the defendant. But so they didn't do that. So I think the strongest argument, your biggest hurdle is the text. I would agree, Your Honor, that the statute could certainly have been drafted more clearly. However, either interpretation, to read it in the favor of the appellants, you would have to read in that it is applying to Section A1 claims as well, not limiting the Section D claims. And Your Honor has pointed out before in referencing the Guam matter is really instructive for how the court should read this when the preparatory language is missing. It should not be read in isolation in an effort to tear away the companions based on a negative implication falters in light of the other strong text around it. And even more importantly, I would refer to Justice Gorsuch writing for an opinion of the court of all eight justices as Justice Kavanaugh was not participating in that decision. We've long stressed the significance of a statute's sequence of provision. Which case are you talking about? That would be New Prime, Inc. versus Olivieria. I didn't think Justice Gorsuch wrote Guam. No, Your Honor, I believe that was Justice Thomas. Yeah. And in New Prime, there were sections one and two were describing what was being legislated, and then three and four were applying. That's precisely what's happening here. Subsection D is creating a new cause of action. And Congress, as they created this new cause of action, realizes presumably that they needed to provide the court with parameters for how that action should go. One through nine dictates. Go ahead, finish the thought. One through nine dictates how plaintiff brings the case, and E10 dictates how a defendant, if they thought it was improperly brought, can appeal. So on the point that you started with, which is that if Congress had used the same clause in an action under subsection D in 10, it would have been confusing. I'm not sure I completely follow that because I thought where that was going was there's a difference between an action that belongs under subsection D and an action that might have been brought under subsection D, but actually turns out not to be one that belongs under subsection D. That is correct, Your Honor. And if that's the distinction, isn't that also true of all the other provisions too under E? In other words, E1 says, or a lot of the other provisions speak in terms of actions under subsection D, but even in cases in which those provisions are applied, there's still going to be an underlying question as to whether the case is in fact one that belongs under subsection D. Except, Your Honor, in 1 through 9, that's dictating how plaintiff would bring that case. So if you're bringing it under subsection E, you've already made that affirmative choice where subsection E10 is for the defendants to say plaintiff had improperly brought this claim. Plaintiffs under E10 wouldn't claim that the claim was imprudently brought. I guess all I'm saying is then it seems to me, and I just may be missing it, but it seems to me that under 1 through 9, when it says action under subsection D, it's already reading into it an action that the plaintiff has chosen to bring under subsection D. And that's already read into it. And so if the same language were used in 10, then it would be the same thing, that it's just an action that the plaintiff chose to bring under D. Now, that might turn out to be something that the court decides was improper, but it's still all an action under subsection D means is not whether it's properly under D, it's just something that the plaintiff chose to bring under D. And, Your Honor, I understand your reading of that for that provision for E10. However, that would not be the case when read in a sequence. If you look at the provisions as a whole, 1 through 10, that reading would not come to light in the same manner. And in addition to the statutory structure of this provision, 
the court should also look at the untenable and unworkable result that you already highlighted um, in, in your earlier questions, if in fact this jurist E10 is to refer to all claims of immunity. As your honors have noted, the jurisdiction will, like a ping pong ball, be bouncing back and forth based on how the motion is granted and when the appeal is brought. Certainly, Congress was not intending to put litigants in the untenable position where there could end up being conflicting case law. For example, in this matter, if the court were to find improperly that PrEP Act immunity is afforded to the appellant, however, in a companion case, the um, party chooses to go through trial and then appeals to the Third Circuit, the Third Circuit could reach a separate result. And then future district court cases in the Eastern District are going to be left in the position where no matter how they rule on a motion, they're going to be committing reversible error. It would... Uh... Would there also be the circumstance that the defendant, if the defendant likes the law better in one circuit than the other, and the defendant has the alternative of either taking an appeal, attempting an appeal under 1292B or under E10, then the defendant could figure out which court it wants to go to by choosing which procedural vehicle it's going to use? Certainly, Your Honor, appellant's view of the statute will lead to forum shopping. That is, un that is undeniable. Uh, they, they would still have... 1292B is not automatic by any stretch, so it's, you're still running a risk if you try to go by, by sure. 1292B. I assume that you don't think 1292B is automatic because I assume you'd oppose it if Correct. The, the defendant sought it here. Is there any reason to think they couldn't have a Cohen collateral order appeal in the third? We would argue on the merits, Your Honor, that we, we would oppose that on the merits. We would not oppose it on the procedure. On, on the, on the, you, you think there, I thought that, that in the previous argument that you would oppose the existence of a collateral order appeal, or am I wrong? Or maybe that's just, you don't, maybe we shouldn't commit you to this, but on, do you think that there is a collateral order appeal? We would want to analyze that appeal before commenting on that specific appeal, Your Honor. In, in some, as it relates to jurisdiction, the reading of E10, when read in sequence, clearly indicates that it is only for Section D cases. However, if the court needs to look beyond the presumably ambiguous language due to the lack of a prefatory clause in, in, in looking at the results, it's clearly, as Your Honor had indicated with your question, it's going to lead to form shopping and is going to put the district courts and litigants in an impossible position of being reversed regardless of how it is brought or how it is ruled. To the extent that you're relying on Guam, um, what's, what's the anchor provision? So in, in Guam, the Supreme Court referred to an earlier anchor provision that colored the way it looked at the following provisions such that the lack of a specific reference to CERCLA in the, in the case about seeking contribution where somebody has settled, uh, the court said, well, we should understand that to be where they've settled CERCLA liability. What's the, anchoring, the an analogous anchoring provision here? Really, the anchor, Your Honor, I, I would refer, as, as Judge Shervasan highlighted earlier today, that the title of Section E is Procedures for Suit, and that procedure for suit is immediately following subsection D. So Congress is putting into the statute a new cause of action, and then they are outlining the procedures for bringing a suit under that cause of action. So here, Congress kind of hit their hand in, in, in labeling these and sequencing these in the manner in which they did. It is meant to be read as a whole in context going, this is our new cause of action, and this is how it is to be brought by plaintiffs, and if it's believed brought improperly by plaintiffs, this is how it is subject to an interlocutory. 
This court simply does not have jurisdiction over the pending matter. However, if this court does determine that a merits analysis is appropriate, it should find that PREP Act immunity does not attach the actions of Watermark and the record before it for two primary reasons. First, the record establishes that Watermark's use of hydroxychloroquine did not meet the HHS declaration on limits, limits on distribution requirement. And second, Watermark's use of hydroxychloroquine does not fall within the population condition of the declaration. And, and thus, it cannot be deemed to be acting in accordance with the declaration. I thought you were really relying on the emergency use authorization. So when you refer to the declaration, are you, are you reading it as incorporating the terms of the emergency use authorization? Yes, Your Honor. And where did it walk us through that? I mean, I know you briefed it, but just walk us through the short version. Sure. So the declaration limits liability for covered countermeasures as they relate to either one, a federal agreement or contract, or two, recommended activity involving a covered countermeasure in accordance with a public health response. Here, the EAU, EAU was the public health response, and it gave very specific parameters for how hydroxychloroquine was to be used and administered. And it specifically, there's no dispute that the FDA authorization upon which they would rely was for meant to treat COVID-19 patients only in a hospitalized setting who were ineligible for clinical trials and finally were 50 kilograms or more. Ms. Cannon was not hospitalized. She did not weigh more than 50 kilograms. And the record is devoid of any analysis of whether she would have been eligible for a clinical trial. So is your understanding, I mean, in some ways, a nursing home is like a hospital, but is it your understanding that the threshold there is because the treatment itself was understood to have risks and limiting it to people who were in the hospital and also weren't eligible for trials was sort of like, if this is really the last thing for someone who's seriously, seriously ill? Yes, Your Honor. And, and the parameters for why they gave it was, this was meant to be a last resort. This was not meant to be given to asymptomatic patients like Ms. Cannon in a setting where if something goes wrong, they're ill-equipped to do so. And I, I anticipate, as they raised in their brief, they're going to claim access under the safe harbor provision on the merits argument. However, the safe harbor provision still requires that the individual be within the population identified in the declaration or authorization. Here, it is clear and indisputable that the facts before this court, that Ms. Cannon fell well outside of the population requirement. And, Your Honor, I, I hear your question to say, is there any way they could have seemed like a hospital? Mm -hmm. The declaration made clear in a hospitalized setting only. It didn't say hospitalized or other medical facility or to any person providing treatment. And it's noteworthy in appellant's brief that they said they were preparing, that they received guidance that nursing homes should not transfer patients to the hospital and should prepare for an influx of patients. So they were already being told by the government that they are not a hospital and that they are going to have to keep their patients there. What about their argument that they were under a conflicting obligation when a doctor has prescribed a measure to administer it? Yes, Your Honor, I, I'm glad you raised that question because that actually goes to whether or not they were negligent, not to whether they would enjoy PrEP Act immunity. However, as, as that issue has been brought up, they are also under a state obligation to obtain informed consent from their patient. Here in this case, as the record clearly establishes, not only did they not receive informed consent, they affirmatively had consent withheld by the Cannon, by Mr. Cannon for medical proxy for his mother. and said, do not give my mother this medication. She has underlying heart conditions that will react poorly. Unfortunately, he was correct. Then the use of that medication led to cardiac arrest and ultimately her untimely death. What's your understanding if someone had uh, 
claims about the willful abuse of a countermeasure that would fall within D and have to be filed within, filed in the three-judge court in DDC, and also had other state law claims like Ms. Cannon's claims of, you know, negligence and failure to care for her in the unrelated to, to covered countermeasures. How do you bring that to you? Just bring two different cases? Yes, Your Honor, because there's, there's nothing that would confer jurisdiction over those state negligence claims to the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals where that subsection D claim would have to or, be Or the DDC in the DDC. first instance, they couldn't be just pendant jurisdiction under ordinary uh, I, I Plaintiffs could possibly 67. waive that issue, but the cleaner way to do it would be to sever the claims and, and treat them differently, which in the event that this court finds jurisdiction and finds that it was a willful misconduct claim, then I would suggest that the state court negligence claim should remain in the Eastern District None of their claims should be severed and brought there. However, that's not the case here. This was not a willful misconduct claim as the population requirement was not met. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Becker. Ms. Miller, we'll give you three minutes for rebuttal. Moving to the issue of immunity, that issue was also guided by the plain language of the act in that this really was a classic example of a cover countermeasure under the act hydroxychloroquine, which I'll call HCQ uh, for purposes of the argument, was a covered countermeasure under two different prongs of the PREP Act, one it being a qualified epidemic and pandemic product, and the second that it by virtue of its emergency use authorization. The error in the uh, district court's opinion... But you, you only preserve the emergency use, author use, use authorization claim. You didn't preserve below the, the other claim. We, we did raise the full definition of the covered countermeasure below in several places. Um, certainly, we actually briefed it at length in the removal um, at JA14, JA15, um, also JA21. We discussed the, the covered countermeasure as both FDA approved and under emergency use. In the motion to dismiss at JA303 through 306, we talk about cover countermeasures being used um, as existing drugs, not new drugs that are, are approved for the first time under uh, emergency use. And then we also uh, raise it again in the answer. Um, and then uh, the district court, of course, squarely addressed it. Uh, it's in footnote three um, of the JA 569, where and this, is, this is the nature of the error. She noted that basically, if it's, we're talking about a drug as opposed to a product, that it needs to be considered under emergency use. But what the district court didn't do was look at the further definition of qualified pandemic and epidemic product, which under subsection 7 makes clear it can be a product or a drug or a device. So HCQ in this case did did constitute a covered countermeasure under two different prongs of the PREP Act, one of which emergency use, which had the restriction, the non-hospital, excuse me, the hospital setting, and then the other, it was already FDA approved and had been approved for, for decades and was used more to treat, more for symptom management. Like so you don't dispute that to the extent that uh, you're relying on the declaration, one would have to follow the, the emergency use, author, use authorization conditions. 
We absolutely dispute that the immunity, and this is another part of the district court's um, error in that the court determined that HCQ was not even a covered countermeasure because it did not comply or it was not uh, used in accordance with the EUA. Um, however, the fact of the authorization, the fact of the emergency use authorization under that definition of a covered countermeasure is enough to constitute a covered countermeasure. The proper question, which was not framed correctly in the opinion, is whether strict compliance with the use authorization gets you immunity. And for that, you need only look at the, the PREP Act and the declaration requirements in Wushi and the population. The population was defined so broadly by the secretary for this particular COVID-19 emergency by stating that if the recipient uh, received the covered countermeasure, essentially that's enough to put the individual in the population. I think what um, council is raising is a separate element, and that is the, the recommended activities um, portion of the limitations on distribution, which is in um, the declaration and it's in the advisory opinion. But it's very clear under those documents that there's no strict compliance. It says this is not a strict compliance statute. It's not a strict compliance requirement. And the secretary even gave several examples of where errors were made. Uh, all guidelines were not followed. Um, for example, in the advisory opinion um, that we uh, cited in our brief, there's an example of a pharmacist who uh, purchases and prescribes um, uh, testing kits, and there's a lawsuit, and it turns out that the pharmacist had let their license lapse. I mean, that's a pretty egregious error. The secretary said in that case, the pharmacist does not lose liability just because not all requirements were met. There is a concept of reasonable precautions. And here, the hospital requirement was not even in the regular FDA approval prong of the covered countermeasure. So, Thank you, uh, Ms. Miller. Let me just make sure my um, colleagues don't have additional questions for you. No. Thank you, no. counsel. Thank uh, you. Thank you to both counsel. We'll take this case under submission. Thank you.